Hello and welcome to another episode of 10,000 Hours. I'm Grant Spanier. And I'm Vince Kochi. And you are listening to episode 136. We got no tricks, Vinny. <laughs> no tricks. No tricks at all. Uh, just, just a good old-fashioned great episode coming at you. Yes, with with none other than Mr. Stephen Koss, the author at large. Yes, author of The Fever of 1721. Uh, that is a historic book. It's a, it's a non-fiction piece, and non-fiction is something we haven't really explored thus far on the show, so it was excellent to get him in. The book is about uh, the influenza epidemic that struck boston in the year that the the title is named after uh and he had some really interesting perspectives about how to write nonfiction in an appealing way that still told the story yeah we were talking about truth and uh the yeah the different sides of that uh, how much one needs to honor the source text and and the difficulties and opportunities therein great conversation with that guy Absolutely, and truth, of course, being a very uh, poignant and near-to-the-heart topic in 2017. So, truly, uh, truly, truly, truly. <laughs> thanks to Stephen for offering his point of view on it. Yes, thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Simplecast, which to me is uh, is sort of the beacon of light in the podcasting world. It uh, it is the truth, Vince. It it really makes our lives a whole lot simpler when we're publishing our podcasts. We use it to upload everything and uh, really just a fantastic tool that we've talked about quite a few times on the show before because we're such fans. We're such fans and, of course, users. So you've already been thanked, Simplecast, but thanks again. And, of course, we've already thanked Stephen. So all that's left to do is thank you, the listener, for joining us. Hope you enjoy episode 136, Truth. hope to become family by the end of this and maybe around the holidays we can all get together yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> if you guys are cool. buying we'll get together <laughs> well i mean that might take a while then you know it'd be a cool way to start the show maybe for the next episode uh we can have one of those 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 gongs we can just give three long strikes, and that will signal the beginning yeah. of the show. Because I feel like we we really have run out of steam with the uh, the kind of bullshit we get into at the start of the show. You know, I I really have ta- I've ta- I've taken the jokes as far I well joke, which is essentially just me uh, meandering around for a little bit, trying to fill empty space and perhaps a an, a hole somewhere within me. Um, with fodder, we call fodder. Anyway, maybe a gong. Keep your keep your ears peeled. Uh, Something for the next concrete. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I like it, Grant. I think you know there's somewhere to go. Okay. Wait. Let me let me just try it here. I do think not to provide too immediate feedback, but that a practical gong instead no, of a yes, what I'm saying. I, I agreed. I'm definitely agreed. But I was just trying to. I was just trying to test it out and and see what that version felt like before I invested in a in an actual gong. I know they're pretty expensive. I'm feeling centered. I'm feeling good, and I think I'm good enough to ask Vince what uh, what have you been working on lately? What are you putting your time into? Grant, I'm glad you asked. It's actually been like a a little while since we chatted. I mean, one um, metric hot minute. <laughs> yeah, I think well, one, in European, one minute one minute Celsius. Yeah, one minute Celsius in the European scale. Um, yeah, it's been really busy at work. I mean, I've also been recording like a. I don't want to call it a podcast because that's not really what it is. It's like a. It's like an audio project. It's like a mini series about James Bond. So oh, yeah. uh, still underway, but stay tuned for that in a, in a few months. I cannot wait uh, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, if, if really only fun. to uh, if only to hate on it. <laughs> I welcome it. You know, all feedback's good feedback. Someone said that once, right? Yeah. Um, and then I've been writing a bit personally. I actually meant to. You're just such a busy guy, Grant. But get out of here. 
Yeah, you are. I I genuinely let me feel... decide if I would want to read something. You, I have yeah, asked you're you. Right. I have asked you to send me your writing. I want to say I bet it, I bet if uh, a super fan out there will put together a super cut of every instance where you promise to send me some writing. I bet we're approaching like forty five instances, maybe more. That does seem a little bit like an overstatement, but it's close. It's also close. in our and personal life, right. though. I don't just mean on the show. I mean, hopefully they'll have been recording just conversations <laughs> we've had. I mean, NSA, shout out if you if you have the footage. Um, oh, man. Vince, can I give a quick aside? I, we're ordering a bunch of stuff right now for production, and uh, we're calling it the Amazon Art Department, where we just order a bunch of props via Amazon. And the list of things I've ordered because we're running the production through me right now, like my company, the list of things I was like, we, I agreed with my co-director. I was like, it, it, I'm on a watch list somewhere. It's like bla- <laughs> a bunch of black bats, like mannequins, like face masks. It's just very sketchy. <laughs> yeah. You, just from those three things, you sound like you're going to try to extort ransom yeah. from someone. At least it's like fake prisoners. But, uh, you know, there's no excuse. I'm two chapters in, and I've sent it out for peer review already. So you're you're gonna get it after this call. <laughs> I pray. <laughs> I pray too. Grant, why don't we change the subject and I instead flip the mirror to you? I know you've been really busy. What are you working on lately? What are you? Um, on you know, I don't like to overstate the busyness in in general I, or glorify, but it has been one of the busier times of my life. Mostly production stuff. Uh, I will say, I'm so relieved. Uh, as of this recording, we have an approved music video done for for an electronic duo called Gray, and uh, that's been that's just a pretty insane process. It's the biggest budget and just the biggest scale of music video I've done. Um, so a lot of a lot of that, and then I, you know, with that video, it was actually I think one of the first projects that will fall under the banner of Dad, and Dad is the director duo of uh, me and Corey Waters. And, now, is uh, this a podcast debut of Dad? Can I, I, say I have that? to think so. I think this is a, an exclusive. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> we're breaking it here on 10,000 Hours. It, we've got the Dad Scoop. What a treat. <laughs> well, I'm very excited for you. Always exciting to start like a new like a new venture, yeah. especially a collaborative one. Yeah, there's a, and there's not a, we don't have a lot of stuff out yet, but we do have a website, dad-dad.com or uh, directed by Dad on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Check them out both yeah, in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, and our guest today, Grant, has, I'm sure, a thing or two to say about long-term projects. He is an author. Well, that's his reason for being on the show, at least. He also has a day job, which I'm sure we'll touch on. The book is called The Fever of 1721. You may have gleaned that it is nonfiction. It's a historical book. And the author in question I am lucky enough to call also a personal acquaintance, maybe friend. I'll let him decide on whether that is accurate or not. But without further ado, Steve Koss, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Happy to be here. Now, if I may, I actually, if I may ask Grant for you to ask for the honors. Wow. Wait, so I'm asking for the honors or you're asking if I'm... I'm asking, asking you to ask, yes. Vinny, could I, could I do the honors of, of asking our guest a question to kick us off yes. here? Please, could you? Beautiful. Steve, uh, thank you so much for being here. And, uh, and I'm wondering, what have you been putting your time into recently? Uh, what are you working on? Well, <clears throat> as Vince mentioned, I'm, I've got a day job, and that takes up my days. Mm. Uh, but then I'm also frantically, and I think that's probably the best word I can think of, frantically researching what I hope will be my next book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's because it's a nonfiction a historical narrative like my first book, it requires a ton of uh, front-loaded research, you know, just to get to a place where you can put together a book proposal and send that in and hope that somebody will pay you to write it. So that's kind of where I'm at. Amazing. What What is your day job? My day job, well, I, work, I worked in advertising and, and uh, marketing communications really my whole life, my whole career. Um, Currently, I'm on the client side. I've been on the agency side for a long time. I freelanced. And right now, I'm working uh, for uh, a pharmaceutical, I'm not pharmaceutical, for a a nutritional supplement company uh, doing writing. I see a lot of hopeful parallels in my future career. Uh, I also am like a a nine-to-five advertising marketing writer who hopes someday to be published. 
so I think that's going to frame a, a large portion. Very selfishly, I'm hijacking the entire conversation, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but I'm very interested in the process uh, from the moment that you decided that you wanted to be a nonfiction author, which I think is very, I, I think our listeners would agree, a different perspective than most. There's, it's kind of easy to envision a world in where you're struck by this like fantastical creative idea and you need to get it down on paper you want to tell a story but to be so passionate about a slice of reality that you go on to work as hard as you have to create a a work that's been praised as much as it has uh is really astounding Mm -hmm. so without further ado the topic we're tackling today it's kind of a popular word in the old headlines, in the old cultural zeitgeist, uh, but the word is truth. And so I, I want to start by asking you, Steve, how much did the balance of truth, interpretation, and fiction all play into one another when you wrote The Fever of 1721? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I had never, to, to kind of go back a little bit to your uh, original uh, sort of point about how does one become an author and how do you sort of get into the whole thing, I actually always imagined that when I published a book, it would be fiction because that's what I enjoyed writing. Um, and then I wrote some screenplays because, you know, I was working in advertising, I was doing a lot of commercials, and I thought, you know, that was sort of a natural outgrowth of my advertising work. So what happened was I actually wrote this, what, what became this book that I ended up writing, I actually wrote initially as a screenplay. And in that case, it was obviously, you know, driven by truth, but it was also as a screenplay, I had to take some liberties. And uh, as all, as all uh, movies based on historical based on events do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, so that I went from there where I was writing something that was essentially true, but kind of, um, you know, amped up a little bit for the screen, if you will, to uh, a friend of mine suggested after he saw the screenplay that I should write it as a nonfiction book. And, you know, I'd never done anything like that. And I don't have a background as a as a historian. Uh, Most people who write the kind of book I wrote are history professors. And, uh, you know, I didn't have that background. So I became very... uh, almost paranoid about about the idea of having to make sure that I was true to, as best I could be, true to the, the truth, to the facts. And also, you know, you're, you're always aware that you've got these, you know, big shot uh, historian writers kind of looking over your shoulder, and you've got to pass muster with them. So, um, it, so yeah, it was a little bit intimidating, you know, going into it. That is a, a barrier that I had not even imagined would exist when I when we started this conversation, but that seems so daunting now. In retrospect, I mean, just the just the task of tackling such a complicated pursuit that is being faithful to the events in the past that have happened. That's already paralyzingly daunting in, in my own eyes. Uh, but now to contend with people who make it their livelihood, that's also that's a, that's a wrinkle in the formula that I hadn't anticipated. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it, it was the kind of thing where, um, you know, I was starting, started to make it even more complicated, uh, not that it needed to be, but I, uh, I also was writing about something that I basically knew nothing about. I, I stumbled on the idea that became the book uh, from a fact-a-day calendar, you know, one of those little goofy <laughs> calendars you put on your desk. Uh, that's how I got the idea. I saw the what became the central event of this book was one of the pages on that calendar. And I really just, you know, I, I was just intrigued and got more and more intrigued and did a little research, did a little more, and decided to, as I said, write the screenplay and then eventually write the book. But I knew, you know, this this book is about medical history. It's about history of journalism in America. It's about the history of American politics. It's about Benjamin Franklin. It's about Cotton Mather, all these, you know, famous people. And I knew essentially nothing <laughs> frankly, about them when I started. And so, which is part of the reason it took me eight years to write it. But um, wow. but yeah, it was even more daunting because I was starting from pretty much scratch. I mean, it, it, it takes a certain ob- level of obsession, it would seem, to, to first complete a screenplay and then turn that into a book, um, especially given the, the subject matter. Is 
Are, do you find yourself as curious or obsessive in other areas of your life? Sorry if obsession is too strong a word, but that is like pretty an impressive obsession. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be a little bit to, I think to be a writer, I mean, writing anything, writing a book of any sort, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, it's such a long haul proposition that you've got to have, I think, a little bit of obsession mm-hmm. uh, in you to succeed. You know, in this case, I think as a as a history writer, you've got all the research on top of it. And so there's, you know, there's really no way you can go into a history project and say, yeah, I'm going to knock this book out in a year or a year or two years, because um, unless you just happen to know all the stuff already, um, it's going to take much longer than that. And and yeah, you you know, you have times when um, when you're kind of thinking, what the hell did I get myself into? And the only thing that keeps you going, I guess, is is something like obsession. Yeah, sort of a pot committed. <laughs> yeah, familiar with the I would say term. certainly. Yeah. Um, I am curious. This. Eight years is a is a long time. It's uh, eight years ago. I had just graduated high school. Uh, maybe it was it was nine years ago. But uh, that is kind of dumbfounding for me. That much time. How much of that was research? Is research an ongoing piece of the creative process in something like this, or was there a moment where you said, "All right, I've learned what I need to learn. Now I can start synthesizing." Well, the, the, the kind of the, the bane of existence for most uh, history writers is they don't know when to stop researching. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody who's done this tells somebody who's new to it, um, stop yourself because if you don't stop, you never will. You know, if you don't force yourself to stop, you never will. And I, I kind of was like that. And I think it was worse with me because, as I said, you know, I was so insecure about looking dumb and not, you know, not being able to... <laughs> not be able to you know bring the heat so to speak when it came to writing that um that i really was like i've got to know everything i've got to know everything so i've got you know i literally in fact i'm sitting surrounded by um you know crates and crates and crates and crates of of uh, of stuff the paper and books and things like that that um that i accumulated in the course of doing all this research and, and to be honest with you of all the research i did maybe you know maybe half actually found its way into the book but uh, and it, so, you know, on one hand, I can argue I did too much research. On the other hand, I needed all I needed to know all that context and all the backstory so that I could write confidently uh, about what I was writing about. You know, and, and I think when you're a writer, confidence, uh, whatever kind of writing you do, you do, confidence comes through or it doesn't. Uh, you can't fake it. That's uh that's a good nugget to take away. Uh, I think it's certainly something I've found to be true in writing something as commercial as advertising that confidence is key um but that that makes it even more impressive given i i was not expecting you to have gone into this subject matter uh completely i I mean uninformed is maybe too strong a word but it's the word that you used uh so to to start from scratch would be truly truly terrifying i think i'm a little terrified we're both we're both just sweating i think considering (laughs) uh perhaps that's the fever creeping in um i'm curious i'm curious this is a little bit more pragmatic but i i'm could you tell us just a little bit more about the book and about the events surrounding the fever of 1721 sure sure well the central event of the book is a smallpox epidemic which is one of the meanings of fever uh in the title so in 1721 in Boston, they had a smallpox epidemic, and it was the worst, you know, they would get one about every, usually about every 12 years. In this case, uh, they hadn't had one for 19 years, so there were, there were a lot of people who were uh, vulnerable to this, uh, this epidemic. And smallpox was, at that time, and, and really in history still, it's the leading killer, uh, even more than the plague. Uh, it's killed more people over time than any other disease. So people were really terrified of the smallpox coming to Boston. Uh, when it came, there was really nothing they could do about it because uh, there was no way to prevent it at that point, except, um, you know, they, they would quarantine people. They did. In fact, they had an island off Boston in Boston Harbor, which is still there, called Spectacle Island. And that's where they had what they call the pest house. And the pest house was where ships were supposed to stop if they were diseased because usually a a disease would come in you know via the harbor 
Um, and this one time, it was a British, actually a British naval warship that was exempt from having to stop, having to do anything it didn't want to do, pretty much. Uh, and it came in, and uh, it turned up it had smallpox, started an epidemic. And the epidemic then led to a couple of things that I write about. Uh, directly, it led to the first uh, inoculation experiment in Western medicine, which, of course, led eventually to vaccination. And vaccination, which was just basically a safer way to do inoculation. Inoculation was you literally cut, uh, cut an incision in somebody's arm, and you would take smallpox from somebody who was sick, and you'd implant it in the incision, Ugh. and that person would get <laughs> sick. They'd get sick, but they wouldn't die. And, um, you know, that, that eventually led to using cowpox instead of smallpox, which is much safer, and cowpox became vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. But this was the first time in Western medicine that anybody had tried this uh, procedure, which, by the way, was recommended to Cotton Mather, who everybody knows from Salem Witch Trials as being the bad guy. He was actually a key player in this, uh, in this whole thing, and he, he had a slave uh, named Onesimus. And Onesimus told him, yeah, you know, in Africa, they do this all the time. Uh, they, you know, he had, a, he had a scar on his arm, and Mather said, well, what's that scar about? And Onesimus said, yeah, and when, when smallpox comes to, to a village in Africa, they do this procedure, and people get a little sick, and then they're okay, and it's no big deal. And it was Cotton Mather, who, as I said, is generally thought of as a really bad guy in history, who convinced a doctor named Boylston to uh, experiment with inoculation, and it changed the course of uh, Western medicine. So that's like the central event. And then, the, and then it also turned in, because it was a big controversy, it turned into a big political to-do, and, and also um, it sort of spawned uh, a newspaper called the New England Current, and the New England Current was uh, published by a guy named James Franklin, with the assistance of his little brother and apprentice, whose name was Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Uh, so this book is about Benjamin Franklin as a teenager, which is a part of his life most people don't know. Yeah, I certainly don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, this is it's also so fascinating. Now, in your in your research, I'm guessing, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, because that is, that information would be just as interesting. <laughs> but did you ever have trouble parsing out what was what was verbatim truth, what had actually happened, what was speculative, what was hearsay, and then what might be you know fiction tied into the truth? That's it. You know, I had, I was lucky that even though this happened way back in 1721, I had a lot of newspapers, uh, weekly newspapers from Boston. So I had that account. Of course, you know, I say those are truth, but of course, as we know, you know, the, the press then as now had agendas. And, mm -hmm. you know, there were different papers. And for example, James Franklin's newspaper that Ben helped publish was anti-inoculation, believe it or not, even, although Ben Franklin later became a great advocate for inoculation. So, you know, it had a very political uh, agenda to it. Um, so, but there were a lot of things like that that I could, I could take newspaper articles. Uh, there were diary entries. So I had stuff that on the one hand was kind of objectively true, but then when you step back and you think about, you know, so, yeah, it's a diary, but what is the person trying to tell me versus what really happened? Mm -hmm. You know, it's one person's perspective. It gets really difficult to to say for certain what's true. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the kind of ultimate truth goes, the, the my sort of philosophy on it was to try to kind of see things from different perspectives and... You know, if you can look at the same event from two or three different perspectives, you can probably come close to uh, something approximating the truth. Sort of a Manchurian candidate situation. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I, maybe that's the most interesting part of it uh, in that the work of the uh, – to, to call you a synthesizer or curator is, is giving not enough credit, but the work of the eventual author of a, of a historical work – uh, sort of a detective. Yes, yes, that was exactly the same path that I was going on. But you, I got there first. 
<laughs> but you are doing a service to the reader as you're taking on the burden of interpretation mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, so I guess that parlays into my next question. How much of Steve Koss's opinion on matters or Steve Koss's belief of matters or just your style and, and tone and personality is apparent in the book? And did you attempt to interject more of it or did you attempt to hang back and, and interject less of it? Well, in a deliberate sense, I definitely wanted to hang back. I wanted this to be as objective uh, a book as I could. But, you know, I, I also wanted it to be a really good story. And it, once you start, you, you know, there are a lot of academic history books that are really, really good. And I, and I used and leaned on a lot of really good historians whose work is um, really comprehensive, but it's not narratively interesting. It's not, they're not really telling you a story. They're basically writing history for the record and for other historians. And, and what I wanted to do in my book, partly because, I think partly because it started as a movie, you know, I really saw it as a story, not just as history. So, mm -hmm. you know, then you start getting into, well, then what, what parts am I going to tell to make it a good story? And what parts am I not going to tell because they're not as good? Um, and so, you know, at some point, inevitably, it ends up being kind of my... Uh, vision of how this story needs to be told, you know, so, and you're, you, and you uh, kind of end up having to pick and choose what you tell. And then, and, and in that choice, your personality comes in. Mm -hmm. What I didn't do, um, what I didn't do was I didn't make any direct associations between what I was writing about the themes I was writing about then and present day issues. Although, it made me really happy that when the book came out and I went and presented it to groups or I was on the radio talking about it, I was really happy that a lot of people saw comparisons to you know, politics today and to journalism today. Mm -hmm. uh, because I did too, but I did, you know, as an author, that was not, it wasn't my goal to sort of write an, uh, you know, write an argument book. It was just, mm -hmm. it was basically a story. Yeah, this is actually a lot more creative than I would have thought on first blush. I don't know. I don't know if I've spoken really, uh, at least at this length, with any sort of historical writer. But yeah, the lens through which you present the facts, the curation of them, that is like really, really creative. Uh, just out of curiosity, with the screenplay, do you have any ambitions to to push that any further, or is that sort of just the exercise and now it exists? No, I would. I, you know, it's funny because when people people who have read the book say, uh, without my without knowing that I wrote it as as a screenplay originally, they will come up and they'll say, "Is this going to be a movie?" Because, you know, it does have a lot of it has some great you know dramatic potential. Uh, so I'd totally be open to doing it as a movie. Um, Let's uh, you know, we'll set up. A, we'll get we'll get HBO on the line. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, that'd be good. I'd appreciate sure. that. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> well, I mean. Anything that shows a, that that features a teenage Benjamin Franklin has got to at least have one leg. Because exactly. I think so. Exactly. He's a here's very a popular pitch. character. Here's a new pitch. How we, we call it the disco fever of 1721. We have a time <laughs> time traveler from the 1970s. Go back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Taking some liberties, but I like where you're going. Uh, my my next point has to do with something we have touched on. Um, from time to time, and that is like the the idea of creative dissent or or pushback from the community. I have heard, and I suspect this to be true, that the community surrounding historical nonfiction or stories that 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 circulate around history, uh, there that community can be fairly apt to argue to push back against works, be they historians themselves or just fans of history. What has the feedback been like for your book? Have you, have you encountered any of these types of individuals? Uh, maybe in a more slash, in a more like uh, jib way of speaking, they would be haters or people who have taken exception with some of the things you've written. You know, it's 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 funny you mention that because I have been really really lucky. I was kind of bracing myself when the book came out uh, for a lot of that, especially from the you know, frankly, from the academic historical community. Because you know, I'm a guy who's worked in advertising, right? And I um, 
I wrote this book, and I was fortunate enough to get it published by Simon and Schuster, which is a big time publisher. Uh, and I've got, you know, an, I had an editor named Alice Mayhew, who is like, you know, sort of, she's she's basically it. She, to give you an idea of her status, she her first she's she's getting on in years, but her first book was All the President's Men. <laughs> so, you know, this is like a big time big time uh, editor at a big time publisher. And uh, I'm a first time author with no real credentials to speak of as far as history goes. So I expected to get creamed, you know, and, um, (laughs) and I was pleasantly surprised that um, for the most part, you know, I mean, I got reviewed really well. I got a review in the New York Times book review, in the Wall Street Journal, you know, places where you think people might, uh, might come at you pretty hard. Uh, but they were all pretty good, and um, so no, I mean, I you know, miraculously enough, I, um, I've been treated pretty kindly. Nice. I get, a, I've gotten a few, you know, emails and um, social media comments and things like that, telling me, uh, you know, that I didn't know what I was talking about. But as far as the people whose you know opinions I really value, people who are you know in the history community, I've been really lucky. Nice, that's great to hear. Um. I don't know if you want to get into this, but you, you kind of mentioned it and you did pique my interest uh, when you were talking about uh, people uh, seeing some of the themes and connecting them to modern times mm-hmm. um, from the book. Is there anything in particular you see or any, any interesting through lines or connections uh, that you found when writing the book in relation to what's going on today? Well, there's a, there's several of them. I, one of the really obvious ones is um, is kind of the whole epidemic thing, and and what happened in Boston in 1721 is that the government really uh, pretended they didn't have a problem um, until it was too late. So you know, because Boston was at that point the number one seaport in America, and because the whole economy was was kind of based on uh, sea trade. They did not want to shut that harbor down, and they didn't want any of their trading partners to know they had an epidemic raging there because, or, or building there because, uh, you know, that would be devastating to the economy and bad for business. And, you know, when my book came out, it was right around the time, um, well, it was like post-Ebola, but it was like, uh, you know, right around the time the whole Flint water crisis thing was breaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this whole issue of, like, is government uh, – is, can government what what the government could have done? Uh, I should say in 1721, even though they couldn't they couldn't prevent smallpox in any other way, is they could have quarantined the people who were sick. They could have acknowledged that there were people with the disease and quarantined them, and then you know hopefully they could have stopped the epidemic before it went totally out of control. But they didn't, and because they it was just sort of a combination of greed and wishful thinking and bad government. And I think a lot of people would say. We have all those things today, <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. and that and that they they lead to the same kind of disasters, whether it's the spread of a disease or, you know, public health thing like the Flint uh, Flint water problem, and so that was the that was the one thing that everybody kind of latched onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Flint and Flint's still struggling for sure. <laughs> yeah, they are, and you know, it doesn't even get in the in the news now. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is one of the things, and I think this also brings it back to the topic of truth, uh, that is supremely interesting to me about the topic. I watched, I actually have not, unfortunately, read the book for myself yet, but I've watched um, the, the video on your website to get a primer on it, and what really intrigues me is something that is a very hot-button issue today regarding truth, and that is the truth of journalism and, and the published word uh, in terms of current events uh, and how it is being both sides of the aisle are critiquing sources of their choice. And it seems very difficult, at least me as a consumer of news, to find a truly objective source. I'm guessing that is not too unlike how it was uh, at the time of the, the smallpox epidemic. So uh, I'm interested to see... If you, what your opinions are based on how journalism handled the situation at the time, the role that they played then, and then how it reflects on what's going on in our current situation. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I started researching this, 
I had the somewhat naive belief that in the old days, being the very, very old days in this case, um, you know, journalism was all about honesty and integrity and telling an objective truth. And that, you know, today we've just, everything's gone to hell sort of, you know, feeling, which uh, may be true. But but the first part about things being so great in the old days is not so true. Um, what I realized was that all of these newspapers way back then had had an agenda. They had a political agenda might be too strong of a word. They had a political standpoint, and, um, and that colored what they wrote. And in the case of the newspaper that I, I wrote about in the book, the uh, New England Current, it was, it was, as I said, it was distinctly anti-inoculation until late in the epidemic when they realized that inoculation was working. And to their credit, they acknowledged, uh, they didn't quite say they were wrong, but they acknowledged that it was maybe not such a bad thing after all. But that same paper that was doing that um, also was was the first newspaper to really take on the government. So, you know, James Franklin started this paper opportunistically because there was an epidemic and he knew it would be a big controversy about, about uh, inoculation being tried and thought, hey, this is my chance. I'm going to jump in, I'm going to start a paper, and I'm going to get some traction based on this one topic. But James Franklin didn't really want to write about inoculation or smallpox. He wanted to write about the government. And he also wanted to do some satire. And so he ended up uh, spinning out of this kind of one horse uh, you know, topic thing and into a lot of really cool stuff about taking on the royal government, criticizing the royal government, you know, um, making fun of the clergy, which was, you know, this is Boston in 1721, you know, the Puritans. Nobody <laughs> made fun of the clergy. And he did, you know, and he got, it got him thrown in jail. Uh, ultimately. Um, and Ben Franklin, who was all of 17 years old at the time, took over the paper. But, yeah, I mean, these guys were, um, you know, they were really, they were really kind of ahead of their time in terms of what they were doing. And, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. Fascinating. Yeah, truly. Uh, and, and it's maybe, I mean, my own historical information the the things that i've learned colors my own opinion on this but i seem to feel like we've taken a, a back step from the progress we made uh again this might just be like viewing it as the glory years but the you know the time surrounding the nixon administration and the all the president's men that story and 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 ones like it i feel like journalism is in a time of regression and uh, we're very opinion based currently. Our, our news market, which mm. maybe that maybe that's too simplified of an opinion for me, but uh, I I find those parallels most interesting, mm. given the the biased nature of I, the publications I at the time. See, I sort of see some parallels with, um, and this is sort of a strange parallel, but parallels with even let's just say like photography the business of photography, just access to the tools, quote unquote, has made more people photographers. And I, I feel like in the same way, access to information and the ability to disseminate it, which is in many ways journalism, has just created a flood of, quote unquote, news in the same way there's a flood of photos or, mm. or images. So I, I, I don't know. I, I do think um, in a lot of ways... Uh, the information has, like, w I think some of the systems that are being built on, on, I guess are the, even the, just the digital infrastructure are helping us parse through things through, it's just, there's so, so much of it. And so I, I don't know if it's necessarily regression. I do think it's like growing pains as like more, <laughs> as more and more people enter the, the discipline without, without maybe some of the training and uh, it's, it's difficult, man. It's. Yeah. Well, it's also cyclical, I think. You know, if you yeah. if you study the history of journalism in America, you have periods, you know, there's the yellow journalism period and you know, it's it's I think we go through phases where and I'd say we're in a pretty low phase personally right now in for, you know, in terms of subjectivity and bias and and people having agendas in, in the media. But um but you know, I'd like to think I'm hoping that it's going to come around and and I do agree that, that you know, if you go back to uh, you know, as you mentioned, around the time of Watergate and stuff, there was uh, 
Although the people who were being, you know, the Nixon administration, those people probably wouldn't agree with this comment, but it seemed like it was more objective uh, than it is now. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, it's it's interesting. And even our own opinions about other opinions are always colored by our own perspectives and our own experiences. So that's why I have such a great respect. There's a, there's a comfort for me that comes in from watching, for instance, a historical documentary or reading a historical piece of authorship that there's like something concrete that you can rest your feet on because that's a feeling that I think is really that feeling of objective truth, though there's probably no actual purest pure form of it. uh, It's always comforting to encounter a piece of work that, that can be treated as such. Yeah. I was, I was just picturing myself with chasing my reflection in a hall of mirrors and my reflection is the truth, and I'm just running around. <laughs> never, I mean, that's a catch poetic but apt description, I think, <laughs> for how I feel. Um, well, Steve, we take a break uh, from from the task at hand each week, and we talk about something a little less uh, important, a little less... Well, you know what? Maybe not less important. Yeah, Maybe yeah, that's yeah. unfair on my end, uh, but Perhaps a little less, less germane. Yeah. yeah, less formal. Yes, that's a good idea. That's a good description for it. Uh, we call it the off-topic topic, and it's like our chance to cleanse our palate from the conversation and talk about something something else. Uh, I'm resisting the urge to fall into the, the, the patterns, trademark. The speech yeah, patterns, exactly. the... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Speaking, though, of, of things that we find comfort in, this week we're talking about the jukebox. Uh, not the actual mechanism, though. Hey, if you want to talk about that, go ahead yeah, and talk about it. the machine. I, I, uh, I imagine you now, Steve, just the, the uh, amount of knowledge you have of, of this particular, um, uh, like about 1721, about the events surrounding it. I just assume you have the same breadth and depth of knowledge about every single subject. So I assume oh, yeah. you, you could explain the inner workings of the jukebox to me. Oh, sure. sure. <laughs> uh, but failing that, perhaps uh, the actual thing we're looking for is your, your go-to jukebox song, uh, or if you don't listen to many jukeboxes, just uh, a classic tune in whatever definition of the word classic you have uh, that you love to go back to. Oh, man. Mm. Well, jukebox makes me think of like really old stuff. So let's see. Hmm. Hmm. I, you know, that makes me think of like. Hmm. Like Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. Yeah. Like uh, let's see. Pretty much oh, yeah. anything from Chuck Berry. If that's see, that's an era of music that I'm not even familiar with, which is why I know that it's a good answer because <laughs> it, like, see, it, my like my vision of a jukebox is from, and I can't even call up the, what's the name of that show featuring Ron Howard? and Happy Days. Yeah, Happy Days. That's it. Arthur Fonzarelli smacking the jukebox. That's my vision of a jukebox in real life in my mind. So and that goes to show you how un- uninformed on the subject I am. But uh, I, have, I have come to have a few oldies up my sleeve that I you really some, like. You got some go-tos? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I like the... Um, a guy that I I loved lots of his songs, but then did but never knew who sang them. He is also like a guy that I think is a, a jukebox hero, even though that's a good song in its own right. Mm. Uh, Donovan, are you familiar with this guy? McNabb, best in peace. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he he he's alive. Yeah, Steve okay. McNair, Steve ah, McNair is okay. the quarterback with a similar name. Yeah, that okay. is that is since passed. Steve, are you familiar with Donovan? I I am indeed. <laughs> Is am I right to say that he's a good a go-to for jukebox? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you got this. I think so. You got this, especially cosine. if you're, especially if you're in an altered state. Oh, nice. <laughs> now a few milkshakes, Steve. Yeah, a few milkshakes. <laughs> Old-fashioned sodas. Grant, uh, do you have uh, honestly? Have a track? Jukebox hero was a. I feel like a lot of my oldies uh, influences came from my father, and a lot of that was like the Eagles. Like mm. Journey, man! I saw I I saw a Leonard Skinner concert with them a couple of years back. That was pretty funny. 
Um, I actually I was inspired. Like I feel like my jukebox is now like early aughts. So like uh, that music video I mentioned, we just wrapped. Uh, that band just put out a, an EP, and they have a song with Avril Lavigne, and I was just like, wow, it has been a minute. I, of course, you will remember <laughs> Avril uh, of Skater Boy fame, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, of course I. Maybe we can turn drop the in millennium. Like, maybe we can drop in a few, like just a, a, a quick chorus. I think we have like fifteen seconds, right? As long, as long as we're discussing it for analysis, maybe our editor will drop in a little bit of Avril Lavigne's "Skater Boy." Take it away. I love Turn of the Millennium. It it also fascinates me what will eventually become classic music. Yeah. I told I told my father in a recent conversation that ACDC was classic rock and he seemed horrified at oh, the yeah. proclamation. Wow. No, I think it's very I think it's apt I think it's apt to start calling Red Hot Chili Peppers classic rock. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, ACDC for me too. I had a a DVD my dad got me. It was live at Donington. Does that sound right? It sounds good. Okay, it was great, man. It. it was like a live concert DVD. Wow. We'll, we'll, we'll show notes with an Amazon <laughs> affiliate link, and we'll, we'll get a little kickback. <laughs> yes, line those pockets, Amazon. Steve, what do you consider to be classic rock? Have we have we committed blasphemy by saying what we've said? No, I mean I'm probably uh, I'm probably close to or at the same age as your father. So, um, I'm, you know, Eagles, def- I grew up on the Eagles, nice. you know, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And, uh, there's a great Eagles documentary if you haven't seen it. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought it was really Excellent. good. Um, yeah. So all the, all the people from that era, you know, who's you're talking about who's going to become classic rock and who's, who's kind of weathered the times and mm. stuff. The guy who, you know, Tom Petty, of course, just died. RIP. And yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm actually old enough to remember when Tom Petty started mm. in the business. And um, it's funny because when Tom Petty came out, I really didn't appreciate how good he was. And it's only over time that, uh, you know, I kind of have come to, and a lot of people, I think, have come to realize that, uh, you know, he was a pretty big deal. Yeah, he's amazing. It's, again, we're talking about how, like, perspective and time changes our opinions. It's really... Uh, and art is as subjective as a term as it is and as subjective as a medium as it is. I think it's like rife for that phenomenon happening. Uh, completely. Yeah. Also just like finding an audience. That's uh there's a, I was reading Chuck Klosterman. Have you read any Chuck Klosterman fans? Yeah. I'm looking at a book that I finished this year called eating the dinosaur. It's right here next to my mic. Wow. Amazing. Uh, I was reading his book X. It was just a collection of essays. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks about this term of ad- advanced with a capital A. He would describe certain artists as advanced, which really meant that they were like advanced beyond their current time, uh, their like place in time, and their work wouldn't be necessarily appreciated for a little bit. That's um, such a funny concept. It would be so odd. I I would think. Uh, I mean, I guess that's happened with you know, of course, a lot of artists and a lot of different things, like something even like a show like Arrested Development or something that like gains a little bit of uh fame after it was on but it would be such an odd sensation as a creator you know like years later wouldn't it just maybe a, a maybe, great... the, maybe the podcast vince in what do you think the, the 2030s <laughs> the, someone will stumble across a dusty maybe the 30 uh, drive yeah <laughs> uh i think a great example of that that's in the news again is uh is blade runner which was panned when oh, it came out but yeah. now is regarded as one of like the finest did you catch the science fiction films i haven't yet but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it beautiful. have you really yeah really beautiful uh, i loved it have you seen it steve i have not Get out to the get out to the cinema, Steve. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now that that's settled, uh, but did you see the original, Steve? You know what? I have to admit, I have not seen the original. Oh boy. Well, you, we're not going to do that thing that we both hate, Grant, where we say, "Oh, you got to see it," because you know he knows he knows yeah. you should see it. So I know. I feel bad. It's okay. Man. <laughs> no, you don't have to. We forgive you. Uh, we, there's a lot of there's a lot of media to consume out there. Yeah. Uh, but on that note, speaking of media that is 
under consumed I by myself. I won't speak for anyone else. You know, it's that's not fair at all. It's good but me. I think more his creative nonfiction is is a a rich territory. I love fiction that is like speculative fiction or alternate history fiction. So I think this is like the next logical step for me this sounds like fan actually... fiction kind of right like fan of history <laughs> yeah i mean man in the high castle is like basically fan fiction about the world so uh, yeah. uh i would love to on that note first thank you again for taking the time to talk to us and then vince could i do the yeah. honors of asking you to to ask for the honors <laughs> please please i like i would love that uh vince will you ask for the honors could I ask you, Steve, a couple of questions to wrap up our time together? Absolutely. The first one, this one is hopefully an easy one. Uh, if our listeners wanted to support you, what would they do? They would buy my book or several copies thereof. <laughs> That's the perfect answer. That's what we hope for. <laughs> Too many of these guests with these altruistic answers when we ask that. <laughs> yeah, well, and also, and also save the world, but buy my book first. <laughs> Yeah, or perhaps uh, save the world by buying the book. <laughs> Pardon me? Oh, I said, where can they do that? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you can get anything you want on Amazon, including my book, uh, which is probably available in both paperback and hardback, uh, hardcover on Amazon. And um, the, the paperback, which came out a few months ago, might still be in your favorite bookstore. So by all means, if you can patronize your local independent bookstore and and get my book that would be super hmm. perfect and then you've also got a website which i am sure has all the links which is stephencost.com we'll show notes that as well correct uh now the second question this is designed to be tougher but maybe it's not you know i don't know it's up to your experience if you wanted our listeners to take one thing away from your time on the show what would you want that one thing to be well, I don't know that we really addressed it, but I was actually thinking about this earlier because I know you asked this question. And I was thinking for anyone who wants to be a writer, whether it's a fiction writer, nonfiction writer, um, screenwriter, whatever the case might be, um, do it early. <laughs> you know, I waited a long time before I, before I finally got going. And um, it's a lot better to do it when, uh, when you're younger. So... Um, I would say, hoping that there are some aspiring writers out there, that uh, that you will do it, not just talk about it. Wow, that's a. Uh, I was kind of hoping that your advice would be, you've got all the time in the world. Go ahead, <laughs> be lazy in your twenties and early thirties, and then get around to it eventually. Like I, uh, that's you know. So I'm not terribly pleased with your answer, but uh, I think it's quite useful. It's quite yeah, useful advice. That's fantastic. Uh, go get it <laughs> absolutely that's that's in the thesis of our show truly, truly. Uh, I mean that's just a flawless segue which I've ruined by acknowledging it but uh, we actually do we have one more request for just you just one last thing sure 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 uh, we sign off our show by saying ship it well we don't say it that's where you come in we ask our guests to say it uh, it's a bit of a you know I, I've said it already it's a mantra it's a thesis of ours uh, that if it doesn't ship, it isn't art. So you got to go do stuff. It sort of connects, uh, really, to the to his uh, parting words there. You oh, know? go yeah, go get exactly. it, go ship it. Yep, yep. So perhaps you can uh, say ship it for us, Steve. I would be happy to do that. Uh, are you ready, Vince? Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> now I am. I wasn't before, but now I am. Okay, gentlemen, ship it. Okay.